trust and, and inspires it and inspires you to move through life with, with confident joy, with confident hope. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want us to reflect particularly on verse 5 in Psalm 23, where the poet says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. There are at least four images that you could draw out from that verse alone, from verse 5. And so what I want to do this morning is reflect on those four images with you and see how they all come together to move us towards confident joy. And those four images are this. This is what we're going to be looking at this morning. First, the menu. Second, the enemies. Third, the host. And fourth, the party. So the menu, the enemies, the host, and the party. Uh, the menu. The first thing to notice about, about verse 5 in Psalm 23 is that we are at a meal. Uh, that's what this is. It's a festive, celebratory meal. Uh, we're no longer in the green pastures and beside the still waters. We are at the dinner table, and that's really what's going on. We are at a party, which may seem odd to you. It may seem odd to us as modern readers of this psalm, a shepherd throwing a party. But I don't think it was odd at all to the original hearers of, of Psalm 23, the ancient Hebrews, in fact, I think they knew exactly what David was communicating in Psalm 23, where he makes this shift from, uh, or seeming shift from a shepherd to uh, a dinner party host. Let me explain. Uh, Leslie Newbegin was, uh, was a well-regarded missiologist and theologian. Uh, he was a churchman as well. He reflected on the theology and the practice of Christian missions around the world, he also served as a bishop in the Church of South India for over 20 years. He died in 1998. And in a short compilation of uh, talks and lectures that he gave that I've been reading through, um, he speaks directly to the imagery of the shepherd that's found throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he says something like this. He says, you know, uh, modern readers of things like Psalm 23 have largely sentimentalized this idea of the shepherd found in, in, in the Bible. When we think of shepherds, especially us modern uh, urban, suburban folk, uh, we think of uh, the stained glass fig figure of a blue-eyed, soft Jesus caressing his pet lamb. Uh, that's what he says. Uh, when in fact, if you read the passages in the Old Testament, like uh, Ezekiel 34, the, the, pas the passage that we read a little bit from in our time of confession, you come to realize that the figure of the shepherd is more like a warrior king. He's more of a political ruler uh, than sort of this soft and sentimentalized uh, um, uh, herder of sheep. In fact, the language of shepherd was used frequently for political and military rulers, both in the Old Testament, in places like Ezekiel 34, as well as throughout the ancient Near Eastern culture during the time the Bible was written. So the ideal shepherd in the Bible and in the culture of the Bible was in fact a warrior king, a king, a leader who would do justice, who would punish wrongdoing in the wicked, and who would lead his people into victory and peace. Now, 
I hope you're beginning to see some of what Psalm 23 is doing. Uh, some of the, the imagery that's, uh, that David is, is utilizing in Psalm 23. It's not, the poem is not shifting from that of a shepherd to a dinner party host. Rather, what David is doing is he's expanding on the same imagery. The shepherd is the warrior king. The shepherd of Psalm 23 is that leader, that military ruler who is leading his people into victory and peace. See, you shouldn't be, as I, as I often did, trying to fit the imagery of sheep uh, into verse 5 as if there is a, 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 a flock of sheep sitting down uh, at table. Instead, we should be seeing that the God of the Bible reveals himself as a shepherd king who is leading his people into abundant, festive, celebratory joy. See, in ancient cultures, uh, when you wanted to express your wealth and your power and your might and your majesty, uh, or perhaps a, a raise that you recently experienced, what you would not do is go out and purchase a new home or a new car. Rather, to show your might, to show your wealth, to show your success, you would host a dinner party, and you invite everyone from the community. And the more wealthy and the more powerful you were, the more extravagant the table would be. You would host a meal with three times as much food on the table as the guests could eat. Uh, that's a difference between ancient Eastern culture that assumes the idea of relationship and community and solidarity and hospitality over against more of our experience in the West, that of individuality and, and possessions and stuff. That's very helpful in explaining the psalm. I hope you glean something from that. But the, the real question is, for you and for me, I think this morning, what does it mean? What is the takeaway? What is the point of God revealing himself as the shepherd king who is leading you to a meal of abundant joy? This is the takeaway. God has prepared for you a meal of abundant joy. Do you know that? Do you know and believe and experience that Christianity at its core, at its very foundation, is rooted in joy? Christians, my Christian friends here, yes, Jesus was a man of sorrows. We are called as followers of Jesus to lament and weep over our sin over the sin in our communities, over in the brokenness that we see in the world around us. But did you know that we're also called to joy? We're called to happiness. We're called to celebration and festivity. Has that joy taken a hold of you this morning? Do you know that joy? To my non-Christian friends here this morning, if you are here, we, we welcome you. We're so, we're so glad that you have come into the party this morning do you see, to my non-Christian friends, do you see what God is offering you in Christianity? In this thing that you've, you've thought of maybe perhaps as just religion, old dead religion. God isn't asking you to abandon your happiness. He isn't asking you to abandon your joy. He's inviting you into the source of true happiness and delight. Christianity is not primarily about you doing your duty for God. It's God saying, will you come and delight? Will you come and take joy? 
take it from a well-known, well-respected writer, C.S. Lewis. He said this in one of his most famous sermons, The Weight of Glory. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do you taste that this morning, that you and your life, that me and my life, we are far too easily pleased, fooling about with ambition and drink and sex when God has promised you a holiday at sea. He's offered you the opportunity to drink at the source of all happiness and joy. The menu in Psalm 23 is meant to show you that extravagant, abundant, gracious, benevolent, welcoming God. So what about the enemies? C.S. Lewis, who I just quoted from, he was a great Christian apologist, writer, theologian, and he didn't like Psalm 23 verse 5. Uh, Lewis's dislike of verse 5 may be, if, if not the verse that bothers you, certainly uh, one of the lines in Psalm 23 that's difficult to understand, perhaps maybe the most difficult to understand in the entire psalm, at least it has been for me. What in the world does David mean that God, the shepherd king, prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies? I've struggled with that verse. I've wrestled with it. I'm, uh, I've learned a lot. I've read a lot. I don't know what you envision when you read or hear that verse. Uh, for me, I, I think I have frequently pictured kind of a calm collectedness in the face of hostility or adversity. Um, that what David is talking about is this idea of uh, being able to... Um, save face in the, in, in, in the face of hostility or pressure or something like that. Perhaps maybe an imagery or a story like David and, and sort of bravely f- squaring off against Goliath with a kind of cool confidence. Now, maybe the Bible does teach something like that somewhere, but that's not what's happening in Psalm 23. So what's, what's going on? Well, it's, it's not this calm, cool collectedness in the face of adversity, but on the other hand, C.S. Lewis, he described uh, his issue with this verse uh, like this. He said that what, what's happening in Psalm 23, verse 5 is, quote, petty and vulgar. That's his words, not mine. Why? Why would Lewis describe that, this verse as petty and vulgar? Well, when Lewis heard this passage... What he heard, and maybe you hear it this morning, is he hears David taking joy, taking enjoyment, taking delight at the fact that he is sitting down to dine while the people who had harassed and criticized and betrayed and snubbed and looked down their noses at him are forced to watch and hate his enjoyment of this meal before them. And if that were what the Bible was saying, then yes, it would be petty and petulant Uh, and just kind of odd and weird. The problem is that the Bible's notion of the enemy, when it talks about the enemy, is far more profound and far more radical than anything I think Lewis uh, understood, at least as related to this psalm. So who are the enemies? 
Who are the enemies? The enemies in this psalm are any powers that seek to oppress or steal joy from God's people. The enemies in this psalm are any powers that seek to oppress or steal joy from God's people. You're saying, where do you get that? I'll show you. In the context of Psalm 23, the enemies are anything that you face in the valley, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For sheep, it was external threats like bears and lions. But who are the enemies of the poet David, the writer of this psalm? Well, we don't have to look far to find at least a glimpse of who those enemies may be. And they're found in the psalm that precedes Psalm 23, Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, David is describing a season of his life, a moment in his life in in which he is being attacked by enemies. He says in Psalm 22, verse 6, that he feels like a worm and not a man. He's lost all his dignity and sense of self-worth. He's scorned by humanity. He sees people mocking him and excluding him. He describes them in the language of the wild animals, like angry bulls and ravening lions and wild dogs who are encircling him and seeking to devour his life. This is not as C.S. Lewis surmised, people who were just merely looking down their nose at David. These were enemies who were actively engaged in destroying the psalmist's reputation, in dismantling his joy, and ultimately extinguishing his life. I don't know who the enemies in your life may be right now. You know, for some people in the ancient world, and even today, Psalm 23 served as a kind of political tract. What do I mean by that? Well, remember what I said earlier, that political figures were often described with the language of shepherds in the ancient world. So for someone living under the tyrannical and unjust rule of a a figure or a king, Psalm 23 became a way of saying, the Lord is my shepherd and you are not. But the enemies for you and for me, might be something closer to home. It may be that cancer diagnosis. It may be that nagging sense of failure and unmet expectations. It could be that thing that you are fearing right now, that your kids are abandoning Christianity, that you will be found out for who you really are, that you will finally succumb to the anxiety and depression that has haunted you your entire life. The enemies may be as numerous as there are people here today, yet there is one enemy that I can guarantee that we all share, one that we often don't talk about, especially in Southern California, and that is the enemy of death. My morning routine goes somewhat like this. Um, Katie leaves the house before I do, and I have the opportunity and privilege to take my kids and drop them off at preschool. And on my way from preschool to the church office down in Santa Ana, I drive by a a cemetery. Almost every day I drive by a cemetery right south of the 22 off Fairhaven. And I drive by the cemetery every day. It's sort of just become a custom of mine. And uh, just this past week, I drove by that cemetery, and for the first time, I've seen people milling about and uh, different services going on, but this week I saw a young woman sitting on the grass by a tombstone weeping, and I could see that from my car. And I had to pull off to the side of the road and just 
just sit with that. That one day, I will die. One day, you and I will face death itself. The ultimate enemy. And in moments like that, it became crystal clear to me that this psalm, the truth that's found in Psalm 23, is something that you and I desperately need because we will all one day face that enemy, that oppressor of God's creation and people, that ultimate stealer of joy. You see, this psalm is anything but petty and vulgar. It's the confident hope that death itself will ultimately be embarrassed and shamed and utterly defeated. How? How in the world does that happen? You need to look at the host, and that's point three. You need to look at the host, the host of the dinner party. There are two things about the host, about God, that we learn in verse five. The first is that God isn't just a shepherd who guides you and feeds you and cuddles you. He's a royal warrior king. And in Psalm 23, he is honoring those who demonstrate allegiance to him alone and leading into captivity all those who attempted to overthrow his rule and reign. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to argue for it. There it is. He is a royal warrior king. But there's also another reality about God that's shadowy in Psalm 23. It's barely there. I was helped this week by a scholar by the name of Ken Bailey, who both through his own experience living in the Middle East, as well as his deep knowledge of ancient practices and customs uh, in that area of the world that go back thousands of years, he says that in the ancient world, the master of the house, the thrower of the party, someone commanding respect, the host of the meal, for example, would provide the meal. He would provide the party. But the servants would prepare the meal. The host would provide the meal. The servants would prepare the meal. There are several examples of this even in the Bible. Uh, Perhaps the most well-known is found in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, where the father in the parable orders a feast but sends the servants to prepare the meal. You prepare a table before me. Do you see what Psalm 23 is saying? Yes, God is a mighty, victorious warrior king who will conquer his foes. But he's also a table servant. Now, friends, do you know why that's amazing? Do you know why the shepherd who says in Psalm 23, I'm a mighty king throwing a party, but also a table waiter that's attentive to your wine glass is so significant? It's significant because throughout the Old Testament, God was showing his people that there was going to be another shepherd out of the royal lineage of David who wrote this psalm, who wrote Psalm 23. In the book of Micah, the prophet Micah, God says through the prophet, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Do you hear that language? Ruler, strength, majesty. But elsewhere in the prophets... 
think of a passage like Isaiah 53, there's glimpses of a servant who would be oppressed and afflicted and scorned and degraded and yet not open his mouth. Isaiah says that this servant would be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearing is silent. Do you hear that? For centuries, God's people looked for a shepherd who would also be a lamb, a great king who would also be a servant. Does that sound like anyone in Scripture that you know? Someone born in the city of Bethlehem, someone descending from David's family tree, a leader who so perfectly captured the toughness of the shepherd king and the tenderness of the servant lamb. Friends, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. Jesus identified himself as the good shepherd in John 10 and was called the Lamb of God by some of his earliest followers. Jesus was the one who said in Mark 10 that whoever would be great, whoever would be majestic among you must be your servant and whoever would be first must be the slave of all. So, If Jesus is both the king and the servant, the shepherd and the lamb, how does he prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? You know, for years I read this psalm, like I think most of us uh, read our Bibles, uh, that it's something that's all about me. The Bible is something that's all about me. I often read my Bible that way, and I'm a pastor, and I'm trained, and I went to seminary. I'm the little sheep who needs the shepherd's tender care. That's true. That's unimaginably true. But that's not the fundamental reality of Psalm 23. Friends, the speaker in Psalm 23, the one who was being led to green pastures and through the dark valley and was seated at a banquet table as the honored guest, is actually Jesus. It's actually Jesus. You see, David is the author of Psalm 23, but he's also the author of Psalm 22 and Psalm 24. And in Psalm 22, David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are David's words. And yet, and yet, they are more fundamentally, more ultimately, more truly the words of Jesus Christ as he bled out on the cross. Psalm 22 is Jesus speaking in his greatest valley, the valley of the shadow of death. But Psalm 22 is not the end of the story. The cross isn't the end of the story. The table in Psalm 23 points to the celebratory victory, the celebratory party in which death itself dies the beginning of all the sad things coming untrue, the table in the presence of enemies is resurrection. It's the beginning of a new world where joy is the final note, where tragedy and death give way to happiness and indestructible life. But there's more. Psalm 24, there's more. Psalm 24 gives... It's... Psalm 24 is called, uh, it's, it's commonly referred to as an, an enthronement psalm or a, or a gateway liturgy. Uh, that's the, the scholarly terminology, but don't pay attention to that. It seeks to answer this question, Psalm 24. Who can come into God's party? 
Who can come into God's house? Who can come into this festive gathering where we're celebrating the death of death itself? And the answer Psalm 24 gives is the only person who can come into God's party is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. That is someone completely other than you and me. A person of such moral beauty and moral character and inward integrity that they've earned a spot at God's table. You see, Jesus is also the reality of Psalm 24. He's the only person in history who found his joy in God alone, whose hands were clean and whose heart was pure. Do you see? Psalm 22, the cross. Psalm 23, the resurrection and joy. Psalm 24, the ascension of the king. Friends, that is the gospel. Jesus came and lived a perfect, sinless life. Of all people, he deserved God's green pastures and still waters. He deserved the protection and security of God's rod and staff. And he deserved, he earned God's welcome into that last final party. And yet on the cross, Jesus endured unquenchable thirst. Instead of God's shepherding presence, he was abandoned and forsaken. Instead of a rod of protection, Jesus received torment and physical torture. Instead of the joy of the Father's house, Jesus was abandoned into utter darkness. Why? For you. For you. So that you could receive all that he deserves. And now Jesus is the, he's the king of Psalm 24. That means that at the heart of the universe is someone who knows fear, who has battled with evil and who has stared down and faced the ultimate enemy, death itself, and come out victorious on the other side. Friends, he is the fiercest, bravest warrior king. And yet as approachable and humble as a little lamb. And that's not just good news, that is great news. I'll conclude here, the party. Psalm 23, it saves the best for last. It's all about a party. Verse 5 is all about a party. That's ultimately where it ends. In God's house, with a party where the table is spread with the best food, where the wine never runs out, and where God himself unashamedly is running around making sure everyone's having the time of their lives. Do you want to come? Do you want to join that party? Then you have to know the cost of Psalm 22. The great cost that the shepherd himself became the lamb. He paid the cost for all of the times that I am seeking to find my ultimate joy and happiness in anything other than him. You have to believe that the tomb is empty. That resurrection is true. It's the ultimate reality. That Jesus has defeated that last enemy. And is even now preparing a celebratory party for you. You have to trust the king of Psalm 24. The one who lived the perfect, righteous, just, sinless life that we could never live so that you and I could enter in the, into the halls of the king, not just as a freed prisoner, not just as a little lamb, but as the honored guest. Do you know that's how good the gospel gets? 
that because of Jesus' perfect work on the last day you can stand faultless before the throne, that God will welcome you into his presence and you will sit as the honored guest. Friends, that's amazing news. And that should fill your week and your life and my heart and my life with the most inexpressible, inexhaustible, confident joy. Let's pray. Father, we are so often like little children who are fooling around making mud pies in the slums when you have offered us a holiday at sea. We're busy building our lives and our identities and our reputations and seeking joy and pleasure in a number of good things and yet failing to recognize in all of those things that you are the source, you are the fount, you are where all happiness and joy comes from. Father, forgive us, break us, Show us once again that Psalm 23 is about Jesus, that he is the warrior king and the servant lamb who laid down his life, who left heaven, who left the joy of the Father's house to come and rescue us and bring us into that final party together where we will dine with you, where we will speak face to face with you, where we will join with loved ones who have died before us, and we will be reunited in that great wedding supper of the Lamb. We look forward to that with such longing hope and anticipation and eagerness. Father, fill our hearts with that solid truth that it's coming, that it's on its way, that you've prepared a spot even for us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.